We are in chapter 20 this morning. We'll be looking at verses 19 through 26. We're getting near to the point at which the very last days of Jesus will be covered. But for this morning, we see yet another encounter between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Luke chapter 20, beginning at verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's? He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able to catch him in the presence of the people, to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. O Lord, we need your wisdom. Not just today, but each and every day. Strengthen our hearts. Make firm our resolve. Show us our need to cast our lives upon the Savior. This we ask. In Christ's precious name, amen. It is something that so many of us are so often worried about today. That is, the role of government in our lives. We're concerned about what government is doing and not doing. We are Wondering what sorts of laws they will pass that will cause us problems. What sorts of laws they should pass that would help us. But it's not just even in our own country. We have concerns about the governments throughout the world. The smaller the world gets through the age of information, the more we become aware of problems in other places with other governments and the greater our concern. We wonder how we should approach the very concept of government and then specifically 
our relationship to the government of our nation. So this morning we have another altercation between the Jewish leaders and our Lord Jesus Christ. And in this altercation, Jesus takes the opportunity to not only answer their question, but to answer a question for us thousands of years later to give us guidance with respect to government. What a great blessing it is that the Lord has preserved for us in this passage perhaps the pithiest, wisest statement anyone has ever made about government. And so this morning I'd like us to see the two main parts of our passage. First, we will see an encounter meant to attack. That's an encounter of the leaders with Jesus that is meant to attack him. And then secondly, we will see that Jesus responds with an answer meant to inform. Not just to inform those asking the question, but to inform you and me. Thousands of years later, Thousands of miles from where this happened. This is the glory of God's word. Well, let's begin then by looking at this encounter that is meant to attack. This is the last week of Jesus' life and ministry. Now, we don't know with absolute certainty, but it would appear that this is probably either the Tuesday or the Wednesday of his last week. So to put this in context, it will be perhaps a day later, tomorrow, that the disciples will sit around a table with our Lord and enjoy the Last Supper. In two scant days, our Lord will be hanging upon a cross to die for the sins of his people. In just a few days more, he will rise again and change the creation of the universe forever. But now before we can get to there, there's yet another attack that he must endure. Everything is coming to a head that has been building up for a long time. And here what we see is the hearts of those who are opposed to Jesus revealed. This is something that they have had in their hearts for a great many days. As a matter of fact, if we go back to the very beginning of Mark, to Mark chapter 3... And verse 6, we will see that at the earliest part of Jesus' ministry, years ago, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus to figure out how they could destroy him. It's years later, and they're up to their same tricks. Because you see, everything is coming to a head. Jesus is at the height of his popularity. He has been teaching and healing. He has come into Jerusalem to a king's welcome. The leaders have had enough. Can you imagine what that would be like for them? Put yourself in their place for a moment. These are the bigwigs. These are the movers and the shakers. These are the people that think they should be important, that have been important. And you see... Here this backwoods, part-time rabbi comes into the capital of the Israelite nation. 
to the welcome of a king. You could just imagine the conversations that would go on amongst them. Well, you know, I didn't get this kind of welcome when I did my 20-part lecture series. I didn't get that kind of welcome when I performed those sacrifices last year. You remember with what flourish I did them and how well I did it. Oh, yeah? Well, how about that bill I helped get passed by the governor? I didn't get any thanks for that. And now here Jesus is treated like a king. This is wrong. We should get our due. Because you see, what's in the hearts of all of these leaders is pride. And that pride leads to hypocrisy. Pretending they are something that they are not. And that pride and that hypocrisy lead inevitably to hatred. They're consumed by hatred. They've had enough. Look at verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. They couldn't wait another minute. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. You see, they heard and knew what Jesus was doing. They understood him. But they rejected him. Now, this is worth pausing on for a moment. Because I think sometimes we have a misconception in our minds that the only reason people don't believe in Jesus is they haven't had him explained to them well. And if we just explain him with great clarity, everything will be fine. And then we're shocked when we explain the Bible in Jesus that people don't want any part of it. But you see, this is illustrative for us. They knew exactly what Jesus was teaching. They knew exactly what he was claiming. And because they knew, they hated him. That's what's in their heart. And so what they do is they devise a strategy to be rid of Jesus. Now, it's interesting. We see a group of people coming together. Luke says that the scribes and chief priests come together. The first group within this larger group are the Pharisees. Luke here calls them the scribes. We've met them before. Matthew and Mark refer to them specifically as the Pharisees. Now, this is the group most threatened by Jesus because they're the religious leaders. They're the ones who want the people coming to them for teaching. They want the people coming to them to ask questions. And Jesus has been teaching and instructing them in God's word. And so they're losing their importance and their position. You can imagine this week was especially painful for them. They are the ones who are supposed to be the stars of Passover week. And here, they can't even get off the bench. You can imagine how that would light a fire under them. There's a second group. Luke calls them the chief priests. We know them better by the title, the Sadducees. And if the Pharisees were the religious conservatives of the day, the Sadducees were the theological liberals. You see, they were in charge of the temple and of worship, but they didn't believe in things like the resurrection. They didn't believe the Bible was the word of God. As a matter of fact, they only accepted parts of the first five books of the Old Testament. And all things being equal, the Pharisees and the Sadducees would on a good day fight it out hammer and tongs. And there's a third group. 
Matthew calls them the Herodians. These are the people who are the natural enemies of the Pharisees. They support Herod the king. Now, you'll remember that Herod is the king of the Jews, except for there's only one problem. He's not a Jew. He was made king by the Romans, and so the Jews hated him and hated his rule. But there were some people in the land, some Jews, that, well, they liked fancy cocktail parties and nice clothes and good food and knowing people in power. And so they were on the side of Herod and the Romans, and therefore they were called the Herodians. They were the politically savvy people of the day. And so here you have the moral majority... The Jesus Seminar and a political party. They don't seem to have anything in common. Except they have a love to kill Jesus. This would be like in our modern age if we had a movement to attack someone in prominence that was headed up by the Black Panther Party together with the Tea Party, together with the Washington establishment. Now, could you imagine those people even sitting together civilly in a room? That's what we've got here. What brings them all together is their plot to kill Jesus. They are so eager. Look at how Luke puts it in verse 19. He says, they sought to lay hands on him. There is an eagerness. The word here for sought is the word we get zealot from. They are eager to do it. And they want to lay hands on him. Now, now, this is not the kind of laying hands that we do when we pray for someone who's going on a mission trip. This is a violent action. An action meant to get your attention. It would be like, well, you know young people when mom or dad really wants to get your attention and they lay hands on your ear to pull you to a certain spot in the room? This is like what a mob does to someone. It's physically close and attacking. They only have one problem, though. The Jews, for all of the things they could do, did not have the power of the death penalty. Romans were kind of funny that way. They wanted complete governmental authority. They didn't want anyone else committing the death penalty. So, could you imagine this group standing in a room? You know, if this was the good old days, we would just take Jesus out and stone him. We might find a nice cliff and throw him off it. But the Romans won't let us do that. And we're trying to trip him up. We're trying to make him look like a fool. And every time, we just can't do it. Luke also tells us that they're afraid of the people. Now, I don't think what Luke means primarily here is that they're afraid the people are going to attack them if they say bad things about Jesus. I think Luke knows that they are afraid that if they attack Jesus, they will look less in the eyes of the people. They will lose their popularity. They will lose their standing. Because after all, that's what they're most concerned about. They're actually more concerned about their pride and standing than even their life. And so what they do in verse 20 is they decide on a subtle attack. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said. 
Now, notice the thing here is they think Jesus is just like any other person. You know, if you followed me around long enough, you're going to see me do something incredibly stupid. You're going to see me say something bad. You're going to see me act badly. I'm okay with that because the same will be true if I followed you around. But you see, we're just human. And they think Jesus is just like they are. That if they put him under the microscope long enough, that he'll do something that will allow them to pounce. And so they're watching, they're waiting. And then they send out spies. Now, the word here for spies is only used in this passage, but it's very vivid. It means those who lie in wait. So the picture I want you to get is you remember when you were younger, or maybe you're younger now, and one of your siblings hid behind a piece of furniture or a door, just waiting for you to walk in, to pounce and scare you out of your shoes? That's the picture I want you to get. They're waiting to pounce. They're waiting to get Jesus. And they're pretending to be sincere. Luke says they are pretending to be righteous because they want to catch Jesus and they want to deliver him over to Pilate, Luke says. Now, have you ever had that experience of having someone deal with you who just you found out later was completely insincere. All of the the actions that they would put on, all of the the fronts they would put up, it's, it's sickening, isn't it? Now, these people's job is to be insincere. They're hiring out insincere spies. And they pretend to support Jesus. They come up to Jesus first with flattery. Now, you do know what flattery is, don't you? Flattery is the polar opposite of gossip. If gossip is saying behind someone's back something you would not say to their face, flattery is saying to someone's face something you would never say behind their back. And we see here what they do. They spring a trap on Jesus. You can almost hear their voice, can't you? Teacher, we know that you speak And teach rightly, and you show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. They start in verse 21 by building Jesus up. Jesus, we have a question for you. It's a small question, a short question. I'm sure you could answer it because you should know the right answer. You're the one who teaches rightly. You're a great theologian. This should be a piece of cake for you. Oh, and by the way, you'll give an honest answer. Because you don't show partiality to anyone at all. So you won't be swayed by anything to give the right answer. Now, the picture here that Luke gives us is they say you do not receive someone's face. Now, you know what that's like when you're talking to someone and as you're talking to them they start frowning. And then you keep talking and they start scowling. And then you start changing what you're saying because they're upset. Or the reverse is true, right? You start talking to someone and they smile and they start nodding their head and you, oh, I'm going. Preach on. But Jesus doesn't do that. He just gives a forthright answer. And then they say, you know, the other thing, Jesus, is we know you're going to give us a practical answer. This won't be pie in the sky, 
theory. You'll give us an answer that is right for us because you know the way of God, how we should live. And so even in their flattery, they're trying to spring this trap. They're trying to leave Jesus no room to maneuver. What they're trying to do is beat Jesus at what they think is his game. You see, they're going to ask him a question that they think is like the question Jesus asked them in verse 4, up earlier, when he said to them, Now, the baptism of John, is it of God or of men? And you remember, they didn't like that question because it was a dilemma. And it was lose-lose for them. So what did they do? They said nothing. So you know what they did was they went home. And I like to think in a smoke-filled room, they concocted what they thought was the Jesus dilemma question. How can we get Jesus so that if he says yes, he's in trouble, and if he says no, he's in trouble? That's the only way we can get Jesus. we got to get him coming and going. And so what they do here is, they intend to ask a question that he cannot answer. And that question is in verse 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now, this is an interesting question. When they say, is it lawful, they don't mean, will we get arrested, will we get fined? They mean, is it proper according to the law of God? Jesus, teacher, theologian. Answer for us that difficult question. Don't tell us what statutes on the books. Answer the harder question. And then they say, is it lawful for us? So what they do is they want an immediate practical answer. You see, this is their way of getting around what I call the lawyer's favorite answer. One of my favorite things to do as a lawyer, someone would ask and say, well, can I do this? And any good lawyer will tell you your best answer is to say, it depends. Depends on a lot of things. First of all, because then you can't be wrong. But then secondly, you can get more information, and and it depends on the certain circumstances. You can't ask me a general question. You see, they are getting out of that. Jesus can't say it depends. They want to know right here, right now, for us, can we pay this tax lawfully? Answer, Jesus, now. And then what they say is, the heart of it, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar? Now, The word here for tribute is is a word for tax. Some of your translations may have that. But I want you not to think of Matthew the tax collector or Zacchaeus. We've talked a lot about tax collectors. This was not that kind of tax. This was what has been called historically a poll tax, which is kind of a misnomer because there were no elections in Israel. We might think of it as a head tax. That is, every single Israelite had to pay directly to Rome, not to a tax collector, once a year, a tax of one denarius, that is one day's wages, merely for living. It was a direct tax. It was a reminder that they were under Rome. As a matter of fact, I think part of the motivation for Rome, some of it was monetary, because even that small of an amount over everyone in the empire would raise a lot of money for a lot of circuses. But I think part of the motivation for Rome was to remind the people that they'd conquered that they were under the Roman boot. You see, the Romans understood that not only do elections have consequences, wars do too. And they wanted to remind the Jews 
that they were under Roman authority. And so the dilemma here for Jesus is, on the one hand, if he answers yes, then he gets in trouble with the Jews. Because the Israelites hated this tax. They considered actually the payment of this tax a sin. It was robbing God. It was a violation and a reminder of their deserved freedom. It was a reminder of the pagan rule over them and all that was wrong in the world. And if Jesus would have said yes, he would have been branded as a traitor. And I'm sure the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians would have hoped that the crowds around him would have dispersed as people would have said, oh, that Jesus, he's just another politician. He's like all of them. You know what that's like, don't you? You said that once or twice in your life. But you see, I don't think this is really the answer that they hoped Jesus would give. It's a, it's a bad answer, but I think what they really hoped is he wouldn't say yes, but he would say no. Because you see, if he answered no, he'd be on the wrong side of Rome. Now you remember, I've told you several times that the Roman Empire, the Romans only really cared about two things outside of Rome. One was money, and the other was peace and quiet. And every time people didn't pay money that they were supposed to pay, or they disturbed peace and quiet with a rebellion, the Romans were the all-star team of putting down rebellions. They did it mercilessly. They would depopulate whole cities. And you see, I think the group here was hoping Jesus would say no. And as soon as he'd finished saying no, I think the fastest Herodians would put on their track shoes and run to Pilate and say, you'll never guess what we heard. There's a rebel in your midst. He's telling people not to pay taxes. You can't have that going on. The next thing you know, there'll be a full-scale rebellion. You better get rid of this ringleader. We know this is what they wanted to do. You can look later in your Bibles at chapter 23, verse 2. It's exactly what they do, even though Jesus didn't say no. Well, what underlies this dilemma here? What's the problem for Jesus? What underlies it is bad theology. It is bad theology for the Pharisees, bad theology for the Sadducees, bad theologies for the Herodians, and a bad worldview. And that worldview and that theology says that everything is either or. That all of life has two buckets. And you have to decide which bucket to put it in. There's a religion bucket, and there's a politics bucket. And you have to pick. Isn't this what the secularists in the world want today? They want everything to be determined as either being religious and therefore not open in the public sphere or secular. And if you have a a religious viewpoint, you can't talk, you can't do business, you can't do anything, right? But I'm going to here to tell you that there's many in the church that have this exact same worldview. And what they say is, everything has to be religious. And you shouldn't have anything to do with anything that isn't religious. Because that's the other bucket. Everything is separate. What's the right answer? Pretend you're hearing this for the first time. What should Jesus say? Should he say yes? Or should he say no? What Jesus does is he gives 
the best answer that's ever been given on the subject. It's an answer that informs. We see the true master at work. You see, Jesus knows the craftiness of these questioners. He knows it's not an honest question. When Luke says he sees their craftiness, there is a great deal built into that. That word means underhandedness. It means without scruple. They are willing to do anything to catch Jesus. This is the exact same word that is used to describe how Satan deceives Eve in his craftiness. And so what Jesus does is he answers the question with a question. You see, kids, when you ask a question and mom answers with a question, she's got good precedent for it. Jesus did that a lot. And when he answers these questions with this question, he takes it out of their realm and he begins to instruct You see, they wanted to make it a strict loyalty test. And Jesus makes a profound statement. He looks at them and he says, show me a denarius. Now, then he says, whose inscription and image are on it? Now, you have to understand that a denarius was a coin of the Roman Empire. And on the front side of the denarius was a picture of, guess who? Caesar. Specifically here, Tiberius Caesar, the second of the Roman emperors. And on the back side was an inscription. And do you know what the inscription said? Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So you can imagine this was not a very popular coin in Israel. It was part of the reason they disliked the tax. But do you see how wise Jesus is? He looks out at them and he says, show me a denarius. Now, I like to think in my sanctified imagination, there's kind of a dramatic pause here. Everyone's kind of shuffling around. I'm not pulling out a denarius. You pull out a denarius. All right, fine. Here's a denarius. Right? And as soon as they do that, what has Jesus done? He's caught them. They're carrying around a Roman coin. They're benefiting from the Roman government. They're using this to do commerce. They are a part of the government. And they're asking him if they should be a part of the government? It's in your pocket, buddy. Oh, and by the way, on the back is a blasphemous statement that Augustus is divine. And on the front is an image that's a violation of the second commandment according to you. Oh, you could imagine this. The shuffling, the looking at the ground. But you see, Jesus isn't just doing this to embarrass them. He also wants to explain what this means. You see, he's caught them in their trap for him. Some of you may remember from days long gone by the great and wonderful wise show of life of Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner. And you remember that Wile E. Coyote would always build these traps for the Roadrunner. And for some reason he always bought things from Acme. But he would buy these traps and he would lay them and the roadrunner would always go right through them or around them. He was never caught. And then the coyote would be just aghast and he would go and he would go and test out the trap and it would what? It would clamp on him all the time. And you'd wonder, maybe you should learn. It's not just cartoons. It's Pharisees and Sadducees too. Because you see, they are caught in that same trap that they have laid for Jesus. 
And now Jesus says to them two things. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render unto God the things that are God's. And what Jesus is saying here when he says render unto Caesar, he is saying, I refuse to declare that government is illegitimate. Catch this. 2015 Christians. Jesus refuses to say that a warlike, oppressive, persecuting, overtaxing, foreign government is illegitimate. I'm not sure what Jesus would say about the Office of Budget and Management. But they ain't got anything on the Romans. You see, sometimes we can get swept up into that, can't we? Because we see things that legitimately make our hearts ache, make our eyes cry, make us feel hopeless, make us feel like everything is lost. And what we want to say is this is all illegitimate. We need to get rid of it. What island can we move to and set up a Christian republic? But you see, Jesus doesn't say that, does he? Jesus says, render unto Caesar... What Jesus is saying is a poorly run state is better than none. Think about all of the blessings we have here. I dare say that if we had no government and no army and no police force and no firemen, that very quickly you would long for huge deficits and gigantic federal registry pages because life would be unbearable. It would be like living in the wild and wolves would be better than the people that would prey on you. You see, Paul explains that even bad government is better than no government, not because of the government, not because of the people, not because of the laws, not because of the founding, but because government is established by God. Now, there are good and better and worse governments. No one's going to deny that. But the solution is not to say that government shouldn't exist and that we should somehow be separate from government because, you see, Jesus says we are to render to Caesar. Now, what does that mean? It means, first and obviously, pay your taxes. Now, I'm not saying pay your taxes with a smile. If you would have been in my house when I got my latest assessment from the county you would have seen your minister be quite angry. Um, And if it weren't for the wisdom of his wife, we would have probably been moving to someplace where the taxes were lower. I was hot. Maybe you were too. But you know what I did? I paid them. Because that's what God calls me to do. What it also means is we are to pray for our leaders, even the ones we hate the most. Because God has put them in his providence over us. It also means that we are to obey the law. All of the laws. That means young drivers, it means driving the speed limit. And yes, I know how hard that is. You see, I don't have any trouble obeying the law not to establish a cocaine factory. I can pretty much get along with that. It's much harder for me not to push my foot down a little bit more on the accelerator. But what we are called to do to render to others, to render to Caesar, is to obey the law. 
And finally, we are called to participate in civil life. We do not live in a monastery. We do not live on an island. We must be involved in our nation, especially our nation, because in our nation, the people are king. We may not like what the people decide, but the people are king. Now, this does not mean that government has absolute authority over us. There is a right for Christians to resist. There is a right to resist when we are asked to violate a command of God. I have said this to you before, that if the day comes when the government passes a law that I may not preach certain sections of the Bible, you may visit me in jail. Because I will not obey that law. Because it is against a command of God. It is right to resist when we are... When we are asked by the government to act immorally. I pray daily that the scourge of abortion would be gone from our land. But I will never allow any state authority to make me commit the murder of a child. I will die or go to jail first. You are right to resist. But you must be willing to pay the penalty. Because we don't live in a perfect world. We live in a world stained by sin that our Savior is redeeming day by day, soul by soul. Finally, there's a second rendering that Jesus gives to us. He tells us we are to render unto God. This is the other side of the coin, as it were. Because if the coin bears Caesar's image, whose image do you bear? God's. Don't you? We must never forget there is an eternal aspect to our lives and the lives of others around us. Our first and greatest loyalty is to God. And that even the things that Caesar thinks he owns are actually under the authority of God. Right? Now, this itself does not require rebellion against Caesar. But it does mean that Caesar has no rights in God's domain. And that the most significant area of our lives belongs to God and to God alone. Now, why does God allow this seeming bifurcation of spheres? I think first it's to work out the salvation of his people. To put us in the crucible of difficulties that we might be refined and by the power of the Holy Spirit and the word be made more and more like Jesus. I think secondly, he does it to restrain sin because even the worst of governments restrain some sin. And then third, he does it for the glory of Jesus. For we see what is truly important. We see who indeed is king. Brothers and sisters, we must be careful. We must be diligent. Far too often we want to take the easy way. Jesus calls us now to obey him. And that means understanding the legitimacy of government. Because it is established by God. And it means seeking the Lord in the most significant areas of our lives. There are philosophers, there are pundits. But none has ever given more wisdom than Jesus in these few words here. Let's pray.